a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Are you recording? Greetings, rock stars. You are listening to episode 10 of the Howie Games Artist Series Part A, featuring a chap by the name of Greg Pickhaver, also known as H.G. Nelson. Now, alongside his great mate John Doyle, a.k.a. Rampaging Roy Slaven, the two have been entertaining us since 1986 when they dominated on Triple J with their brilliant show, This Sporting Life. But of all they have done and the laughs they have given me over the years, which have been plentiful, including their Olympic table tennis commentary, which every time I hear it, it cracks me up. I don't know why. The old ping pong. Ping pong, ping pong. I don't know why, but it makes me laugh. But it is their weightlifting commentary that I cannot go past. He needs to remember, he's trying to tell himself to pick yeah. it up. Yeah. Then he's got to work out. <laughs> he's very forgetful. Bend over. He's very forgetful. <laughs> up he comes. Up he comes. Talks it up. King. Talks back, King. There he is. There he he's is. up. He's up. He's wandering oh, He's got that up. You could put it down now if you like. He doesn't put have to it hold down. Up. Go on, put it down. He's forgotten to put it down. Put it down. <laughs> What's going on? He's actually forgotten to put the put it. Oh, they're going to wave the flags to get him to put it down. <laughs> That's right. They can't. Of course, he can't speak his language. No. Polish. The judges. Now, whilst this is a podcast with Greg. HG does pop in to talk about his new book called The Fairy Tale: A Real and Imagined History of Australian Sport. It is entertaining read to say the least. Get your hands on it. You can also catch Roy and HG on the ABC with their show Bludging on the Blind Side, which returns in conjunction with the NRL in March 2022, or go back and listen to the Bludging on the Blind Side podcast. Now, I won't say too much more now, except to say that you're about to listen to a bloke who gets paid to talk about sport for a living and is truly appreciative of that fact. Greg Pickhaver, AM. Enjoy. Welcome to the Howie Games Artist Series. A man who is a star of the Australian entertainment caper. His name is Greg Pickhaver, sometimes known as HG Nelson, but he's joining us today as Greg. Welcome to the Artist Series, mate. It's great to see you. Yes, Howie. Tremendous to be locking horns with you and all the listeners around the world and all those you've interviewed, which That's are quite it. numerous now. Quite numerous. Yeah. Been a long time. I was trying to cast my mind back. I reckon the last time I saw you was somewhere in Indo. It could have been in Bali and we were both on separate surf trips, I reckon. We were and that's uh, we met uh, in, uh, now I have to get, not Chungu, what's the next one along, coming back towards Dempasar. Seminyak? Seminyak, yes. Seminyak. We were walking down the streets in Seminyak. You were the last person I expected to see <laughs> and we are having trouble with surf in the part that I was going to and yes. you'd gone way up on a river mouth further. Balian, good yeah, memory. Back towards, back towards Java. Yes. And then uh, in a professional capacity, the last time I think it was, was the last Ashes Tour. Yeah. Now, for some reason... And I just mentioned this off air. You were sort of roaming the world calling cricket and you bobbed in for a morning session. And then I thought, oh, how he's here now? Is he going to be here all day? And then you were gone. And <laughs> I've got was... no idea where you went to. <laughs> that was um, that was Triple M cricket. That's right. That was Triple, Triple M, M cricket. And that was the day it was 50 degrees. I'm pretty sure it was the day it was 50 degrees. And of course, Joe Root ended up having to go to hospital dehydrated and all That's that sort correct. of stuff. Geez, you've got a good memory. Oh, well, those things tend to stick out because, as, as I point out, if you ask me how many did Root get out for, I would not get out for how many was Root on when he retired. I wouldn't have a hope. But the temperature, the impossible thing of playing cricket in those temperatures is just stunning. It's just weird. You obviously are like me. You obviously start the paper at 
the back. And I immediately said to you, this will come out next week. Um, the announcement will be well and truly uh, in and out of the news by then that Australia is going back to Pakistan. Um, entertaining. Good to see. And straight away you said to me, first time in 24 years. So you are abreast of sport daily, obviously, mate. Well, remember, Howie, we can't predict what will happen between now and the weekend. We're recording this on a Tuesday morning. Mm. Uh, We commit ourselves to making program across the weekend, or at least I do, and uh, on a number of things. And so I can tell you what what has happened in the past week. On Monday next week I can tell you what happens in this week, but ask me who won the Melbourne Cup. Trouble. I mean, I know who won the Melbourne Cup, very elegant, but just yes. trouble generally. So you, you, you're looking for, I would love to get, as immediately as I saw that, and work gets in all sorts of areas and we get dragged in different directions, but as a man that loves to travel, I would love to go and to a Pakistan in a cricket commentary sense. I think it would be a wonderful, wonderful experience, Greg. Well, the great thing is, is if you said to me, where would they play apart from Karachi, I've got no idea. Rahul Pindi. Uh, Rahul Pindi, and to put cricket into that. And as I was pointing out, is that one thing that I noticed about the Pakistan team generally is it produces players who aren't tutored in the Australian manner. Yes. So they have a much more exotic, for want of a better word, who can forget the rule Pindi Express pushing off from the pickets at the far end. (laughs) At the round weekend, or Wasim and uh, uh, Waka, yeah, good on you. The exciting bowlers, incredibly. The idea that you could generate that pace off about eight steps is just amazing. And of course, the Royal Pindi Express was exactly the opposite. So you have this weird, and their batters, of course, are. Uh, um, Inzaman Al-Huck was oh. one that comes to mind. He's a very solid player. Very and, so, solid and, chap as well. Solid chap as well. <laughs> and, um, you know, um, me and Dad and so on. So they have a great history of these excitable players and, and unpredictable players. And so it will be an amazing series. From what I can remember, it would have been the last time that the Aussies were there. You would know better than me, but I reckon the last time they were there, it was the famous... Mark Taylor declared on 334 alongside Bradman well as done. captain. Well I done. reckon that would have been that tour, Greg. As you say, 24 years ago, it would have been. Takes it off the hip. So he joins Sir Donald Bradman as Australia's highest scorer in Test cricket. And he would be aware, Mark Taylor, more than most. He can't get it past. That's the end of the over. And that's the end of the day's play with him sitting on 334. Now, I still think there's a great question of did he know he was doing it yes. or did he was he completely ignorant of it? I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's I a think great he, story, isn't it? Yeah, did he? I got out. I decided to declare yeah. and I could have got one more run and I would have thrashed the master. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I I, I digress. I digress. I wanted to ask you, before I get into a little bit of um, your family history and where you came from and before you were were HG Nelson, what do you reckon you and John uh, alongside as as Roy and HG have entertained the nation for 40, near on 40 years, mate, which is an extraordinary thing to be able to continue to entertain as new generations come through. What do you reckon the key to entertainment is? It's a pretty broad question. The, the idea is that you pursue two major actions in broadcasting. Now, you being a broadcaster will be familiar with this. 
So you have a ball-by-ball commentator and an end-of-over commentator. You have a commentator who calls the play up until the goal's kicked and you have somebody to commentate on it. That is the basic pattern that you as an Australian understand when you switch on the radio and you hear a coverage of a sporting contest. So Jimmy Maxwell calls the ball-by-ball and Buck Rogers calls the end-of-over. So you have two distinct roles there. You have a person who basically asks the questions and a person who answers the questions. Now, the harder you play those major actions, the funnier it is. There's nothing funnier than somebody who takes something inconsequential deadly serious, and that's what sport is about. <laughs> well, looking at it now, he looks really tetchy, doesn't he? He looks fired oh, up. Look he's, he's, he's all over the place. He can't, can't keep still. He's covered in ants. Yeah, touching himself. Can't touch it himself. <laughs> look at this. He can't get a handle on the bar. No, doesn't know where to grip it. Doesn't know. He looks this is a bloke who we know is on gear. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's been outed from yeah. games because Funny he, nail man. Funny nail man. People will remember that. We've had a lot of emails about you him know? saying... Why'd you forget to cut your last nail? That's right. Shit. In looking around, can't concentrate. Now he can concentrate briefly. Tremendous effort there. Yeah. And basically he's talking to himself. I don't know who he's talking to. I mean, he's not talking to you or me, but it's a very easily done thing. And now he walks off. Oh, he's, he's a bit yeah, wonky, the, wonky on the feet. Tongue in the mouth. Yeah. Yeah, pushing it out. Yeah. Having a look at something, going around. Yeah. You know. Oh, there it is, the tongue, talking tongue, to people. Talking to people that aren't listening. And here he comes again. As here we, we see it in slow-mo. This is a bloke who's been taking gear to enable him to do this. Uh, so you get these elements that build up to make this sort of show into which we tip comments like they're going back to Pakistan, first time in 24 years, um, you know, what's going to happen with the Beijing, Beijing Olympics, is Paul Gallen able to have another boxing match, etc. cetera. Uh, so you tip that content into this bucket and that's what makes it work. The players make the stories, the administration gives you the cream on the cake and you just have a pattern of activity where I always ask the questions and Roy always... Roy's the expert. He's played for Australia. He's opened the bowling. He's opened... And God, only if... Only the selectors had the wit to <laughs> select him again. He'd be the first selected and first on the plane to Pakistan. Do you understand what I mean? I so, do. you know, it's a basically simple thing. Now, this comes from you know, and you can get into trouble by discussing it in this way. This comes from the idea of how comedy works no matter who's doing it. So they may be in, they may not understand that this is what, what they're doing, but they're, they're basically playing major actions like, you know, any comic duo, any lineup of people you like. In fact, any probably any stand-up comic does the same thing, plays major action so as the audience realises that that's not going to change for the act or for the whole time you're there, because the humour is by building always onto that bit that you start with. So I haven't explained that at all well. But if you come out and you start talking about sport, then if you start talking about art, then you're going to get into trouble because the audience, unless it's art and sport, won't be able to follow you. So you just keep piling it on all the way along. Now, having said that, there's tricks inside it that you make the trivial serious and the serious trivial. So... Huh. It is a very serious matter that Jordan DeGoey's got himself into in the New York courts. Yes. It's a hard thing to make that trivial, but there is a way of bagging him and making that trivial, which is funny. You don't, obviously, you don't punch down and take on board the, the issue of the law, but you take on how stupid he is for, to be doing that. I use that as an example. Yeah. The other one is it's long-winded. You and I know we've got five days to fill. How the fuck are we going to do it? Yeah. Well, I often think this in the first session. Oh, you would, you would. Okay, now that's the real art. The real art is 
There's always things to be talking about. And last year when we started working on bludging on the blind side, mm. we realised there was actually no sport. So how are we going to solve this problem of no sport? Well, that didn't take us, that took us about five minutes to solve that because <laughs> the, the, the less sport there is, the more the flight of fancy can be. So how do you separate the two? I was speaking to my beautiful wife last night who, who you met uh, in Bali at yes, that stage. Yes. And she said, so are you interviewing Greg or are you interviewing HG? And I said, no, no, I, I'm definitely interviewing Greg. And she said, are you sure about that? And I said, no, no, I am. So when you become HG, so for example, we are here for, uh, amongst other reasons, because HG has brought out yet another book. <laughs> he had uh, My Life in Shorts, um, Petrol Bait, Ammo and Ice, one of my favourite terms <laughs> of all time. He's now got the fairy tale. <laughs> so when you write or think as HG. This book is released by HG, not mm. by Greg. Do you have to make a mental shift in your mind to get into that character? Um, okay. This is a sort of this extremely difficult uh, thing to explain. It's got to do with attack. Now, attack in comedy is really hard to, or any sort of performance is really hard to teach. Uh, you've either got it or you haven't. You know, so a person picks up a guitar and they can play it. But yep. it doesn't sound anything. What it doesn't sound is attack. There's no attack in it. It's got to have some element of performance about it, otherwise it just falls flat. Now, that can be, a, a you know, a, idiosyncratic. Usually it's extremely different in, in the case of guitar is a good example because people can tell guitar players as soon as they hear them yes. because of the attack. They attack it in a certain sort of way. So what happens in, in what we do is this is incredibly like sport is the energy level has to be set right from the very start of the show, which allows both of us, both Roy and HG, to perform as Roy and HG, even though it's John and Greg doing it, because that's what the skill is. That's what the art is. The attack is almost uh, the whole act. Once you've mastered your, you know, your basic major actions and, you know, your adjustments like trivial is serious and the serious trivial and long-winded and stuff like that, then the attack is all. Now, you and I have often watched sporting teams run on and you think they don't look as though they're going to be able to do it today. They're now not on. Yeah, good on you. In football, that's very common. I can, being a Carlton supporter lately, I've been able to watch the team run on and know they're not going to do it. Well, for the last 20 years. Yeah, exactly. No surprises there. <laughs> Remember, they're the team that never let you down. Now, <laughs> um, look, attack is an energy level and so on. If we go in too low and, and don't, go hard from the start, you never get it back. It's one of those things wow. where it's the same thing all the time. It ha the attack has to be right there from the start. So you often find, you often find um, you're watching a performance or listening to a, a thing and you realise the person the, the, may be quite good but on the day they're a bit off and, and they come in too low and then they can't get it up there. The big thing is the attack allows you, I don't think me and Johnny have ever cried off a performance in 40 years, even though we've been incredibly ill to do them sometimes because of this actual device that allows you to put aside Greg and John for a while. They are the ones with the toothache and the headache and the flu and all that sort of stuff. And HG and Roy never have the flu. <laughs> they just don't. <laughs> they just don't. They just have attack. And the, the, the attack is really an important thing, an important thing. Um, lots of people who are good at things don't have attack and it makes it hard for them to do things. 
So, and that's the difference. The tell you, Mrs. That's the difference. Oh, well, it's a wonderful, wonderful description. Now I've got to think when I'm broadcasting whether I've got the attack. I'll think of that next time. So, if if we're talking about H.G. Nelson, the fairy tale, which I read, and you must pass on to H.G., I tremendously enjoyed. Can you can you switch the attack as H.G. Nelson? immediately and tell me what this book's about? Or do you have to be Greg telling me what the book's about? No, well, it's a marvellous book, Howie. I'm glad you got round to it finally. And uh, <laughs> I'd love to think that I can sum it up in a nutshell. This is a book called The Real and Imagined History of Australian Sport. Now, people who have followed Roy and HG over the years will know that we often don't tell the truth. So what I've done is extend that idea and ask the audience at home as they would if we were making a television or radio show or reading the book to make up their mind whether <laughs> this is true or it's not. Now, some of it, as you know, truth is stranger than fiction a lot yes. of time. Now, sometimes the truth of an idea is way more wild than the fiction. Uh, but then I've, I think I've bent it more in the favour of the fiction in this, on this particular occasion. Does that give you an idea how it works? It does, and it's a mm. remarkable switch from Greg to HG. So check out the book. We'll talk about it more as we go on. I want I want to get back to Greg now, if that's mm. okay. Mm. But I, I did a bit of reading. Before you became uh, a comedian, this is something that fascinates me. I had uh, Curtis McGrath on the show recently, and he talked about life in the modern Australian Army and serving in Afghanistan. You'll get where I'm going here in a moment. One of my favourite episodes of a fellow called Jack Jones, who played in premierships for Essendon in the late 1940s, and he served in Papua New Guinea, and his recall of that was quite extraordinary. Your father served, from what I can gather, in the Middle East and mm-hmm. in Papua New Guinea. Mm. Did you have discussions with him at ever in his life about it, Greg, or was he like so many veterans that did not want to talk about his wartime experiences? Uh, Well, Howie, this is a fascinating question. Uh, My contact with my dad through the war was to do with illness. Uh, He, uh, as you point out, served in the Middle East and in Papua New Guinea, but in Papua New Guinea he came down, it wasn't, uh, it was a, and I'm not sure exactly what the illness is, but some sort of tropical illness that affected badly his skin. Now, he wasn't Robinson Crusoe there, but as he came back to Australia, remember I'm very little here, he comes back to Australia and every summer he seemed to end up in the War Veterans Hospital sort of with this skin that looked as though it was psoriasis or some, you know, and a, a very big rash which made it impossible to live like he just wanted to tear his skin off. Now, um, it quickly became clear that this was a um, something that he found it extremely difficult to talk about, except with other people who had had that experience. Okay, okay. you know. Now, I'm, I'm I, he's not Robinson Crusoe in that. So um, he, uh, I think, gradually worked out a way to deal with it as the as whatever it was subsided as his life progressed. But for the first few years after the, it's a really interesting question, Um, it seemed to bubble up, uh, like I say, driven by summer, and some years were worse than others, and then uh, it seemed to be all-consuming from time to time, and all of a sudden he disappeared for a few weeks into the hospital and come back out. Now, I've got to be honest here, is... My memory as Greg of this period of my life is completely lost. It doesn't mean it's not there. It's just that I have no access to it. So 
I think it caused a lot of problems in the family at home. Yes. Uh, you've got to remember, of course, that my mum's great love of the, her life was killed in the war. It just destroyed her, really. And so this complicated thing of, and then I always come back to Anzac Day was a day where my dad found it easy to return to a moment in his life which was extreme with his, with obviously, he worked in the in the field ambulance like a medic okay. and went on the front line and packed people up and did all that sort of stuff. And uh, then he, Anzac Day was a day when they got together, but of course it destroyed the house because in one corner my dad was somebody who uh, realised that this was a, a seminal experience of, the, of his life, but in my mum's case, it was the most disastrous moment of her life. Now, uh, you mentioned my dad not talking about it. My mum never talked about it. At least I had physical evidence of what my dad went through because he came out in this tropical rash, heat rash thing. Uh, but my mum, not a hope. Right. I've got to be honest here, is the hu- a lot of the humour comes from the things I've just said. Yeah. The family. A lot of the humour... The ideas and the humour come out of that, not to do with that it took me ages to work out that sport would be a great vehicle, but to establish the ideas of humour in the, in the family was used to defuse tension a lot of the time. So, so that was an approach in your family. When things were tough, then people would start trying to lighten the mood through humour or gags or the like. One of them would. Which was <laughs> you? Yeah. Right, yeah. right. That very early on, very early on. Back to Greg in a moment. This is actually the last episode of Series 1 of the Howie Games Artist Series. Thanks to you all so much for supporting it beyond anything I thought possible. Last month was by far and away the most downloads the Howie Games has ever had, so thank you so much for supporting the new format. And to our first 10 guests and their management teams for taking a leap of faith and coming on the show, Paul Kelly, Dan McPherson, Kevin Parker of Tame Impala fame, Will Anderson, Gene Kirkwood, Kirk Pengilly, Andy Lee, Tony Wheeler, Pete Murray... And now, Greg. Series two, fingers crossed, will return in 2022. Let's get back to Greg. So you as a young fella, Greg, were you more into the, I'm talking, you know, uh, late primary school, early teenage years. You've obviously grown up talking about sport. Were you more into the arts or were you more into sport? Like did you play cricket and footy and all that type of thing? Okay, yes, I did. Two things. I had a disastrous experience playing cricket, which I used to wicket keep uh, <laughs> and sort of middle order batters. But the difficulty was I was appointed captain at one point. Right. And appointed captain was a big mistake because I didn't realise that being captain of anything is a political decision. <laughs> so there were always two lobbying sides in the team <laughs> yeah. uh, and some wanted Fred and Pete and Wally to play and the other lot wanted Sam and, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Tim and, you know, Howie to play. <laughs> yeah. And I could never, I've always felt uncomfortable about that and always made the wrong mistake. <laughs> right. Uh, or always picked the side that seemed to be more vocal or more dominant or stuff like that and found it very difficult to do it. How old are you at this stage? Uh, this is in uh, late primary school, early high school, <laughs> early high school, maybe the first okay. two years of high school. So then in AFL, I had that thing that a lot of, well, I wouldn't say a lot of players, I love training. I love training. I love the idea that you could flatten the biggest people in your team and nothing had happened. <laughs> uh, you know, I love the idea, the tackling practice and the, all that sort of stuff. The trouble was I couldn't read the game. 
Okay. So I couldn't see, you know, plays in the forward pocket. I couldn't see that the ball wouldn't come to me. I think it would come to me. I couldn't see that it was coming to me, you know, that sort of stuff. I found it hard to read the game. Now, lots of players probably find the same thing. Mm. It's a hard skill to teach. And I was always shocked by the people who could read the game. How the fuck did they know the ball would go there? <laughs> um, the, the ball magnet, as it's known in the case. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, of course, in later life, being a commentator, <coughs> you can read where it goes for a whole heap of cues. But yeah. as, a te- as a young teenager, you couldn't. So we're jumping around all over the place here, but at this stage I'm not seeing surfing in your life. Like you're in yeah. South Australia, you're playing okay. cricket and footy. When when did you first surf? Okay. Uh, well, the first place I ever surfed was Beechworth. Now people will wonder why the fuck is he going to Beechworth in South Australia, down in the southeast of South Australia. Um, I've got to be honest, that was the first time I ever saw a balsa surfboard and immediately thought, oh, this is really something, this is really interesting. The uh, great thing about it was was that it was a big, relative to my size, it was the wrong size board for me by miles, but it was dead easy to surf on. Okay. Uh, so this was something that it became very easy to find a way of, uh, how would I put this, of being part of that. Now, I've got to be honest here, the solitude of surfing is a great thing. The idea that you wander down to the, I always get wet. I hardly ever go to the beach and don't get wet. Doesn't matter how good or bad it is, I'll always go in. Uh, you go surfing and the idea is is that you improve gradually. Uh, I say to people, I have hardly proved at all in 50 years of surfing, <laughs> uh, hardly improved at all. The one change is that I made a change to boogie boarding, which became very unfashionable, <laughs> so I thought this is for me. And so, um, <laughs> you know, this is this has meant that uh, you'll appreciate this too. This meant that you can go to almost any beach and find something you can boogie board on. Yeah. It uh, doesn't have to be great. And all I was ever interested in was in straight line speed. I was not interested in tricks. I was not interested in 360s. I was not interested in air. I was not interested in anything. All I wanted to do was go quick. And so you look for the hardest, gnarliest, sort of stupidest bit of break you could get and that's where you found me. And so when, <laughs> when I came to live in Sydney, Tamarama was obviously a perfect place uh, and I didn't live uh, that far from it. So if, the, if it came to a pinch, I could walk. But the surfing idea was counterpoint to these other much more organised sports and that's been a big thing. Have you had the delight of an, well, I saw you in Indo, obviously, have you had the delight of one of those special overseas surf trips where you, you put your board on the plane, you know those old Coca-Cola ads when blokes would pop out of the tropical jungle and ah, there'd yeah. be no one there and there'd yeah. be that perfect wave. Have you had an experience like that, that that's still with you, that's touched you? Um, what an interesting question that is. I've surfed all over the place, uh, you know, a bit of time in Morocco, Indonesia, uh, surfed on the uh, west coast of America and I've got to be honest is that I often stand there and the overwhelming thing that I have is I wonder how good Bronte is at the moment. <laughs> you can't tell me you're standing on some pumping right-hander off the back of uh, Morocco, Essaouira or the like, and you're thinking about what's happening at Bronte. Well, the difficulty is is that you, uh, the exotic nature of surfing yeah. in those in a lot of those places is uh, spectacular. Like in Morocco there's a break in um, 
I want to say, not not a million miles from the Casablanca, I think. Um, anyway, it's under a cliff and it's got a castle or an old fort on top of the cliff and you, that's fairly common there, of course, and you think, how imagine, how weird and magical this is that I'm actually surfing here. I yeah. couldn't give a peanut about the wave. It's the whole experience. <laughs> the vibe. It's, it's a vibe. Vibe, yeah. You've got there... You know, I remember uh, once I was in Morocco and they tried to stage a coup. That was pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so you think, wow, look at this. This is just bizarre. Um, and so it's more that sort of thing. And I know you've been lots of places as well. It's more the process of getting there like that time in Indonesia. I found it hard, given the weakness of the surf where I was, to think that you were getting waves up at, up the road. Balian. Balian, yeah. And... Um, so it's all that sort of stuff that it's a sort of like a, um, how would I put it? It's, a, it, it, it's way, I don't mean to be, again, mystical about it, but it's way bigger for me for a whole heap of reasons. So, mate, for you, you, you finish school, what's the grand plan? None, none. I, I, none? I, none, absolutely none. You've got no idea how, how the all these things with hindsight howie yeah. not with not these all these things that we talk about are part of a puzzle which meant that i really didn't get a job until i was 40 outstanding that is to be congratulated at, at, i reckon don't let my kids kids say hear that but i reckon that's brilliant okay tell you what happened was that the grand plan was when i'm 4 my parents were the sort of parents who realised that I wasn't, even at the age of four, I was going to have trouble learning anything. But as it progressed, they, there were a lot of, a bit hard to know how difficult learning was, but it was certainly not the easiest thing for me to master. So what they, whether consciously or unconsciously, they said, let's introduce him into lots of things. And so one of the things they took me to was the Royal Shakespeare Company, who happened to be touring Australia at that time. And I looked at this, not knowing what the fuck I'm looking at, but knowing that I wanted to do that. I don't want to do what they're doing, but I want to do that. Now, wow. lots of people will say that they decided to be a plumber or a banker very early in their life. That's what I decided. How you get from basically the suburbs of Adelaide to doing that takes a very long time. What, what? Some people some people can get lucky, but it take, took me a very long time. Why did you struggle with school? No interest? Uh, it, like how uh, come school I, didn't work uh, for you? How come uh, the uh, academic process didn't work? Uh, I'll tell you one thing is uh, this is right now is the people who published the book asked me to read it as an audio book. I discovered I can't read. I always knew I couldn't read, but when you have to read an audio book, you're under the gun a bit because... It's time, you're working with a producer and all that sort of stuff to read it. How do you mean and you can't read? Well, I write the book and then HG's, you know, meant to be able to read it in, yes. as HG. Yes. Now, I tend to see things slightly differently as it turns out to other people. In other words, people read along a line like this, but my understanding is I move ahead, come back, move ahead, come back, and so I make a lot of mistakes which I then tend to correct as I go along. So I present this problem for the producer as the ah. he or she has to do a lot of pro tool work to get it back as to one. Now, mercifully, I got a producer who's very charitable and let me do that and let me make, correct it. I'm aware I'm making the mistake, but it's almost impossible not to make the mistake. I don't mean to be uh, no, no, no. So limiting. That, I, I find it hard to imagine not being able to make the mistake because I'm not reading like 
A, B, C, D. I'm reading A, D, C, B. So it's not, it's not um, dyslexia. It's, it's, it's just... a sort of, I, I would argue, it's a, um, they'd say there's no mild dyslexia, so I'm not sure exactly what it is, but there is some disjoint. Now, this was a learning difficulty, so whenever it came my turn to read in class, I think I write about this in one of the books, I just hated it. I wouldn't read. I just wouldn't read. It was easier to participate in class in other ways, but there's lots of lots of knock-on effects from that. So I can remember getting through all of university without reading a book. What did you study? Uh, well, I've got an, I've got a way overqualified for what I do. I've got honours degrees in fine arts and drama. And you didn't read a book? No. That's, that's even better. I know. So, so what was it, just to take you back one step, when you were a young bloke and you went and saw Shakespeare and you yeah. saw the people on stage, what yeah. was it that grabbed your guts and made you think, right, this is for me? Now, what an interesting question that is, Howie. I think that what it is is that they were, I've got to be honest here, yeah. in in how people learn about things, this is my guess, is that they lock onto something which sort of explains the world to them. So a physicist mm. will lock onto physics because they understand their worldview is built in studying the planets or the, yeah. you know, the inclined plane or Newton's first law or stuff like that. That explains the world. I haven't thought Dra- of it like that. Now, drama explains the, the history of drama, the way drama works, the way theatre works, the way people get on stage, what motivates them, how they get there, the idea of putting on a hat, a different hat, the other hats, the better hat for the character, all that sort of stuff. That's how people have the world explained to them. So when I watch politicians, I'm not looking at, often I'm not looking at what they're saying, I'm looking at the performance how good or bad it is, how easy would it be to imitate that, how how does that help illuminate or hinder an understanding of what they're talking about. So what was the next step? You, you went through and, and got some highfalutin degrees. As you said, it's a long process. What What's the next major step in this dream to being a performer? Okay, well, I quickly realised, and again with hindsight, but I quickly realised what you have, if you're, if you're looking for to try and find an area of activity that the world might be interested in, you start at one particular point and you can't see what it is that the world will turn in your favour or how the world will turn in your favour. So what happens is is it's wise to have a dip at everything. So, so okay. I used to road manage Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs and, uh, you know, they'd come to Adelaide and I'd drive them around and, you know, help. There's a sort of head roadie who'd tell you what to do and you'd do the rest. Oh, so you're so, like a roadie. Yeah, lugging the Marshall stacks around and the <laughs> guitar cases and drum kits and all this sort of stuff and driving in places. Uh, that was that was early paid job. That was an early paid job. Another one was uh, nothing to do with show business, but we built this artificial reef off Semaphore in South Australia out of used car tyres and... Uh, <laughs> Don't what, ask. What was the reef for? Like for fishing or fish, for surfing? Fish, for fishing, fish. okay. Oh, surfing. Okay. I thought of surfing. No, <laughs> no, for, right. for fish. Right. Anyway, um, the main <laughs> thing was, the main thing was, was I discovered about these things was if you're, if you're thinking that the Royal Shakespeare Company is your model, don't get too swayed from that. Don't The, the fishing the fishing reefs are massive red herring. I don't mean to coin a phrase or make a pun. Massive red herring. Real bad pun, that one. Yeah, I know. So what happens is you've got to keep going, trying to develop more skills in the area that you want to work in, which is laughingly called, as you know and I know, show business. Yes. 
So I've worked in show all my life, but it doesn't mean that I've always made a lot of money out of it or been able to have success at it. So the, a lot of the early work was building sets, uh, road managing, touring things, uh, trying to devise performances, uh, you know, a lot of time thinking about it, uh, wondering, you know, how all this will add up to anything. There was no plan. And in fact, um, you know, Luck, luck, what am I telling you this for? Luck is a huge part of what we do. You've got no idea how much luck plays a part in it. It's really interesting that you say, though, I, I, I was lucky enough to have a series of jobs from the cable hand to the um, audio guy to the guy holding the flecky board to the assistant director to the producer to the main director. So one, I got on camera for the first time, even though I was terrible at it, I knew what everyone expected of me because I'd seen all the other roles along the way to get to that point of fruition, which is exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. I knew you're we had what, something in common. Well, you're seeing what Billy Thorpe needs and, and you're seeing what this guy needs and eventually when you're that guy, you know what everything in the pyramid needs to be to get you there, I guess. Look, there's a big there's a sort of big truism in it, which is, you know, you've got to be, uh, two things you've got to be able to do is, as you point out, have your hand up and waving when people say, who's going to do this? Yeah. And you're saying, yes, I can do that. And the other thing is to be absolutely aware of what the process is. To absolutely, you know, that somebody comes and put a sandbag down and you've got to hit that mark or somebody says the red light's on now. Uh, that wasn't very good. The red light's on now. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Red light. Never get confused. Never get frustrated huh. by that. And the and the great thing is um, that thing of uh, we want a bit here. We want thirty seconds here. We want four minutes there. You know, they're the, they're the basic building blocks. And so you've got to be able to be able to understand as you have from all the things that you've seen how you will do it when you come to do it. And then you, you've got to factor in, like in Royal HGs, as soon as that red light goes on, bang, you're, you're into it. You're, so that becomes a seamless transition then. That's the end of Greg Pickhaver Part A, the Olympics, with Roy and HG coming your way next on Part B. Listener.